Welcome back to the How to Become a Doctor podcast. I'm Kira, a fourth year medical student at the University of Birmingham. And I'm Lucy, a third year medical student at the University of Cambridge. On this podcast, we bring you all the information we wish we knew when applying to medicine through interviewing inspiring guests in the healthcare world, talking to organisations, including the King's Fund and the GMC, and sharing our experiences as mentors and mock interviewers. No contacts in the medical field? No problem, because in our specialty spotlight series, we are giving you guys a front row seat to interviews with doctors working in all of the different medical specialties. We find out what their day job is really like, their top tips for aspiring and current medical students, and what they would tell their younger self. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with Dr. Spelt DR to keep up to date with everything we're doing. So, without further ado, let's jump straight into today's specialty spotlight. Fab. So welcome back, everyone. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Kishan Badalia, who is, well, I'll let him introduce himself, but the whole aim of this episode is to give you guys a bit of context as to what actually happens when you leave medical school, because I don't know about you guys, but I spent a lot of time focusing on getting into medical school. And it was only like day one, first year, I was like, oh God, I'm here now, what next? Um, And what happens later on? So to bridge the gap between all of our applying episodes and our specialty series, um, without further ado, would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a bit about yourself? Sure, my name's Dr. Kishan Badalia. I am a 26 year old doctor, actually just been redeployed to help out in ITU during the pandemic. And I've been working for the last 18 months between A&E, respiratory, uh, trauma and orthopedics and now being redeployed to ITU. So I've been a foundation doctor for almost 18 months now and on the side music is also very important to me um, and yeah music and medicine are both key parts of my life and can't wait to tell you more about them. Amazing so if we that's where you are at the moment if we rewind um, and just talk a bit, little bit about your journey into medical school um, and a bit about your experience and then we'll focus on what happens afterwards. Sounds good well I went to school in Warwick my home home is in Coventry and when I was going through school being a doctor was the only thing I ever wanted to do there was no other sort of career uh, option for me I didn't I didn't consider anything else because I was simply not interested in anything else um, I was always into my sciences I was always inspired by family members and friends who are doctors as well and it was that which really kind of made me determined and motivated to do medicine it kind of trained the way I thought and the subjects that I would choose for at GCSEs and and A-levels and then it just naturally happened really um, alongside studies I found work experience and voluntary work really really um, inspiring and really helpful in confirming that I wanted to become a doctor but I'd say outside of work experience I didn't feel like work experience really inspired me that much what it was was the voluntary work and the feeling of helping people and actually being able to apply skills I already had that made me think okay this is a career that I want to do and that's sort of school up until going to university and then in university it was, I mean, an amazing experience. I think it's more than just the degree. It's also the things outside of the degree that mean a lot to me, like have, making friends, going out, doing extracurricular activities. Um, so yeah, medical school was an absolutely incredible journey. And that kind of brings us up to now, roughly. Brilliant. And so you're in your foundation year two, is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay. And so 
a lot of people say foundation medicine but I'm not sure like I don't even know if I know what it actually means because I'm only in my third year so yeah. are you just unleashed onto the wards and you've got to go and fight for some patients or what happens are you just based in one place do you rotate around so being a foundation doctor be, being a junior doctor full stop is like the most amazing thing ever like there is no other job that I'd want to do and actually when you're going through medical school probably from year three onwards you start questioning why am I doing this it's taking so long to reach that end goal but I can assure you that actually it is totally worth it I was one of those people that thought I really can't be bothered. I'm literally staring at textbooks, studying, and I can't actually see real patients or actually do something, but it's totally worth it. So that's the first thing. Um, but what it actually means is after your final year of medical school, whether that's after five years or six, if you intercalate, you then have foundation year one, that's F1, and then foundation year two, which is F2. And this is where you rotate among various different specialties that you apply to. So you would apply in your final year to uh, a deanery that would be like a set area so for me it's the west midlands um each big city has various different deaneries and then some deaneries include lots of different towns as well so you would apply to that deanery you'd rank all your deaneries in preference and then you're given a deanery and you then rank your the jobs that you want in each hospital within that deanery in order and then based on for me it was what we call the sjt an exam that we do in final year, plus our sort of deciles and this, they call it something else, including your, your performance at university, papers, that kind of thing. They create a score and allocate you your, your jobs based on that. But I know I've heard discussions how this has been changing and actually they'll be not including publications and things like that. So it might be fully weighted on SJT. These things continually change anyway. But once you get that job or that set of jobs, you are just kind of unleashed onto the wards. But it's not like you're there, the only person there. You've got, as an F1, you'll have an F2 there as well, usually. And if you don't have an F2, you'll have someone who might be, I guess, the equivalent of an F3 or above, or what we call an SHO, Senior House Officer. And they're that little bit more experienced and kind of show you the ropes. So there is like a defined role for a foundation doctor. You're the one sort of running the day-to-day -day of the ward, the consultant or registrar will come around and do the ward round, see all the patients, and then you'll be the one to action the jobs. So you're doing a lot of clinical stuff. You're doing a lot of admin as well, for sure, but you are there to make clinical judgments and, and decisions. And it's probably the decisions part of it that's the most scary thing when you come out of medical school. It's like, do I do this? Do I prescribe morphine? What dose do I give? But it's just a learning curve. You're always supported. Um, and then... In your foundation year two, you can then apply for specialty training if you want to do it, um, GP or surgical training or medical training, or even just not apply and have a year out, F3 year, just to go traveling or even um, locum. So you can do odd shifts here and there as and when you feel like it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think yeah. there are a few key words that might be new to the people listening. So one other thing I wanted to clear up is when I was applying junior doctor and foundation years were synonymous in my head, but now I understand that junior doctor does not mean foundation year doctor. So would you be able to explain what the term junior doctor means? Yeah, for sure. So there's like a, a hierarchy based on your qualifications, basically, how high up the ladder you are, and how many years you've been training for. So you come out of medical school, you do F1, F2, and then you can go into specialty training. Now, 
from the point where you're doing F1, F2 into specialty training, you're still a junior doctor. Actually, that's interesting because I don't think registrars, which would be the next level up, are junior doctors. And then obviously consultants at the very top aren't junior doctors. So it's everyone up until your registrar training is a junior doctor. It's quite a broad term. So you can have really experienced junior doctors, some who are pretty much registrar level, but they've not gone into registrar training. Yet they're still a junior doctor. They could have done four or five years, yet they'll still be called a junior doctor side by side. It doesn't really mean much when you're at work. You don't really speak to people saying I'm a junior doctor. You say, I'm an F1 or I'm an F2 or I'm an SHO or I'm a reg. That's how it kind of works at, like, on the job. Yeah. Okay. And I have a quick question about the deaneries. How did you know where you wanted to apply to? So like a lot of people, maybe if they want to go into a specific field in the future, maybe they're already thinking about, okay, I really want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon or something. Do you pick a deanery based on the type of doctor you want to be? What sort of influences that decision making? It's based on so many different factors, the deanery that you choose. It could be based on, do you love the area that you're studying in? So for me personally, I love Birmingham as a city. I think it's an amazing city. Um, I think it has everything to offer you. And then in terms of the specific deanery I would choose in Birmingham, we've got a central one. We've got like a South, South Birmingham one. We've got a Northwest Midlands one. And you, you hear from people who've been working about what, what their experiences have been like in various hospitals. And that really shapes your decision-making. So for me personally, I wanted to have a pretty laid back experience trying to see the specialties without taking life too seriously. And by that, I mean, it doesn't mean I don't want to be a serious doctor. I'm fully serious about my job, but in terms of the, the intensity, in terms of my portfolio and do I want to be in a much more competitive environment, that kind of thing. So centrally tends to be much more competitive. So here in Birmingham, centrally, the, the most famous hospital is Queen Elizabeth, the QE. And people who typically apply there would be ones who have for interest in research, perhaps in specific areas. So it depends on a lot of things. And then you could apply to other deaneries, say for example, a London one, because you know that in that particular area, there's a hospital you know that offers certain type of placement or a combination of jobs. But this is just by speaking to people. I think as you go through your sort of fourth and fifth years, when you start to think about applying, if there's an area you're interested in, you do have to make the effort to kind of reach out to people and speak to doctors who are doing those specialties that you'd like to do and get their advice on where you should apply because there's so many places you could apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just, it just sounds like, I think the thing I'm realizing now in fourth year, so I have to make these decisions next year and fifth year is that it could just be a never ending rat race in terms of getting points. And like you said about, you want to, kind of take life not at a slower pace but maybe not focus so much on ticking all these boxes outside of just being a competent safe and um well like a good doctor in general um and that brings me on to something called an AFP which we'll just briefly bring in here because I know some medical students might be listening as well and that's the academic foundation program and this is this can be geared towards people that want to focus on research but they're also educational ones and uh, leadership ones as well and this is a separate application from what I understand and it's a bit more competitive in the sense that there's generally more points available for um, research publications um, prizes at medical school like where you come in the year oh that was another thing you mentioned deciles and for people that aren't sure what they are it basically um, it's just where you come in the year so top 10% top 20% etc and you get a point for 
where you are but yeah lots of different applications lots of different things to consider but don't stress yourselves out it's just giving you an awareness of kind of what happens and how that transition occurs so how would you describe the transition do you think it's as big a transition as from secondary school to university or do you think like how would it compare do you mean the transition from final year to working yeah um the the transition is quite eye-opening and it is quite steep but it really depends on the job that you were going into so for example my first job was A&E which is notoriously quite intense and quite challenging but I wanted that I wanted to be able to deal with the most unwell patients so that when I am working on wards later on I'll have the confidence to do that that's just the way I am um your experience going into F1 and the transition is largely based on the people around you so the consultants around you and the support and the environment and things like that different wards are all very very different they have like a different vibe kind of thing so respiratory wards are quite intense you've got a lot of patients who are suffering quite acutely you've got a and e where people are coming constantly it's a very uh, relentless environment then you might have like a geriatric ward or an elderly care ward which might be a bit more laid back so it really depends and every f1 every F1 and F2 has a completely different experience, but by the end of that two-year program, you'll all have a um, good grounding on the core medical um, skills that you need to then apply for other jobs. And that's largely because throughout that time, you will all be doing the same number of on-call shifts. So that'll be where you're working out of hours to provide support. So everyone's thrown into that deep end regardless. So you'll always be in challenging environments. Everyone's got that time to grow. So you're kind of forced to adapt, but that's what you've always had to do anyway mm-hmm. through medical school. There are, there are jumps between different years, but the only difference is with this jump from finding a medical school to working is that it's that it's the jump you've been waiting for. And when you're in that environment, it's just amazing to be able to apply all the skills you've learned. You can do those bloods on patients. You can make those decisions. The first time you prescribe something, a drug is a bit scary. You're like, hmm. Let me just check the dose of that five times. When you've done it, it's fine. You realize the patient's fine. And then the next time you do it, it's easy. But then if you are in doubt or doubting yourself, there's always someone who you can phone to get support from or advice from. So yeah, just, just prescribe that. Everyone is, is so nice. They've all been through it. So really that transition is nothing to be worried about, but it's more something to be excited about. That's a really nice way to think about it, actually. Um, yeah. You mentioned that even though you're all doing different rotations, you all sort of get this general core medical knowledge at the end of the two foundation years. Is that examined? When is the first exam after your first, no, your last medical school exams? During the F1, F2 program, we don't have exams as such, but what we have is a portfolio where we have to tick off certain competencies. So this could be showing that we can do a blood test, an ABG, ECG, give an IM injection, things like that, things you would do in medical school anyway, but you just got to prove between F1 and F2 that you can, you can still do that. You'll be doing loads of them anyway, it's just about getting observed and signed off. And then in addition to that, you have to submit case-based discussions where you talk to a senior registrar or consultant and they'll sign off those cases that they've discussed with you. So you have to get a number of these and you have to also reflect on your own practice. We have these evaluation things where we'll send, I'll send out an evaluation to t- 10 professionals on the wall that could be doctors, nurses, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, the receptionist, and they'll give me feedback on how they feel that I've been getting on. And you have to get it completed both years. 
And that's what we call an ARCP. So it's not an exam, but it's more of like a tick box exercise to show competencies. But then the next exam after that would be, depending on the specialty you want to go into. So a lot of my friends are actually doing their exams to then apply for medical training or surgical training. So the exams you would do would be different, but it could be an F2 if you choose to really be on it and want to specialise early. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Thank you. Um, okay, so I think one of the things I'm like the job itself, yeah, really looking forward to it. But also the fact that you start getting paid, you actually start earning money because it's been a long time since, well, if you don't do anything during medical school, um, then it's a long time without receiving an income. I think also sometimes people have a misconception about doctors' earnings, etc. Would we be able to talk a little bit about kind of how like work-life balance and do, like, do you get holidays? Because sometimes it feels in medical school that your time is definitely not your own and it's dictated by the powers that be at medical school and if you get a random week off you're really lucky how does that thing kind of work um I know it might be very different with COVID screwing up people's leave etc but generally yeah generally on these rotations they're four month rotations Mm -hmm. so by the end of both years you would have done obviously two years and you would have had six rotations now within each one you're allowed nine days of annual leave within the whole thing so generally you'll be working nine to five or eight to five, depending on if you're a surgical or med- medical specialty. Sometimes you'll be doing long days where you're working until say 10 p.m. or you'll be doing like on calls where you're working overnight less often, but you can kind of leverage your annual leave and your off days to extend periods of time that you're off. So just to give you an example, um, I worked over this weekend and I worked another weekend as well. So they gave me two off days so that I had my recovery time back. And it happened to be Tuesday, Wednesday this week. But then I also placed annual leave Thursday, Friday. And then I've got a weekend as well. So I've got a stretch of six days off. Mm-hmm. It's just you kind of learn how to do this as you go along. But you get nine days off um, and you can really capitalise on, on it that way. But with COVID, it's completely messed things up. Mm-hmm. So I've been told today that my annual leave for tomorrow has been cancelled um, today. So, yeah, we're kind of learning um and then in terms of like being paid and things we get paid paid monthly it'll differ it'll differ depending on the specialty you're on and how many on calls or nights you're doing and it's hard to talk about work-life balance because we can't really go out and see friends so much right now so most of the life is just saving and occasionally buying something off amazon (laughs) that's what it is Mm. No, it's, yeah, weird, weird times. But oh, you also mentioned locums earlier. Would you be able to explain a little bit about what a locum is? Yeah, basically a locum is a doctor who is not contracted for the year usually, but they're coming in and picking up shifts. So normally this will be in a hospital that you've previously worked in. That's usually how it works. But you can go through locum agencies who will comfortably place you in appropriate specialties in in other hospitals. An example, I worked in A&E as my first job and A&E and F1 is usually an, is quite a, a rare job to actually have because it's quite a serious job to have as a first job. So once you've done A&E as an F1, I can then comfortably locum in A&E in that same hospital, but also in other hospitals if they're happy to have me. So what you do is you'll say, you'll phone up the, the locum bank or the rotor person and they'll say, we've got these shifts available, They'll book you in for these shifts. You'll agree on your pay and you'll get paid for 
those set of hours. They might want you for two hours, four hours, a whole day, or, or even a week. But that's how it works. You can pick up shifts and it's quite nice. And you can do it on the side as well. So like I, I'm working full time. If I wanted to work this weekend, I could pick up two locum shifts and earn a bit more. Mm-hmm. More than what I'd earn F2 wage. Fab, I think we've got a really good overview of what foundation years are. So I guess just to close this part before we go on to the exciting stuff on the side and maybe future plans, what have you found to be the biggest challenge? Because you've been really positive so far, which we are here for and we love. But I mean, it can't have all been easy, like smooth sailing. What have you found to be the most difficult parts? I think that the challenges that you face, you can always flip into a positive because those challenges you, you have, you really do learn from. And the next time you do it, it's fine. So my biggest fear is when I start a new job and have a new set of on-calls or night shifts because you feel largely unsupported because you've got less of a team around you mm-hmm. and you're always worried about burdening your senior who you don't want to disturb late at night. The biggest challenge is when you step out of your comfort zone and you do something new. So a good example is night shifts where mm-hmm. you might be covering all the medical wards in a hospital. You're the only F1. You might have an F2 with you. And there'll be a reg available but normally in the day there's one f1 f2 maybe even more covering each ward so imagine how how much strain that one person or two people have to take for all the wards at night it's quite a lot really so as an f1 that was probably the most daunting part for me but then once you've done it a few times it becomes easy you start to learn what jobs you prioritize or what doesn't need to be done out of hours that's probably one of the things that scares me most frequently, like I had an on-call on Saturday on trauma and orthopedics and trauma and orthopedics is like a completely different world to what I've been doing, like broken bones. I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm on call seeing patients as they come in. But luckily my registrar was so supportive. I'd go and see, I'd say, I've just had a phone call about this person who's come in with this possible broken bone. What should I do next? And you say, do this, this and this, find out this, this and this, examine them in this way. And then feedback to me and let me know what you find. And I just phone them up and then we'd put, put a plan together. And then that's how you learn. So it's actually not as bad as you think, but it is scary before you do it. Like I was dreading it so much, especially as, a, as there was snow the day before. I was like, everyone's going to slip and fall and break bones. Um, but it was absolutely fine. But then on top of on calls being massively challenging, the next most scary thing is when you have a patient who's deteriorating and you're on your own. And nurses are around you they're saying like doctor what what should we do and this can happen on your first day of f1 and you need to know what to do and the thing is you will know what to do because you would have got to that point at the end of final year you will be at that point where you could deal with the situation if you needed to it'll be tough but you'll get through it because you'll have your frameworks to work through and then those are the most rewarding ones as well once you stabilize a patient yeah Um, And I was just wondering if you could tell us about what it's been like working throughout the pandemic, because obviously you've been a doctor for 18 months and I don't even want to think about how many months we've been in lockdown and, you know, trying to combat coronavirus. So I was just wondering what it's been like working during that time. I was on the respiratory ward when it all started in January, February, March time. And when it all started, we were kind of a bit um, we weren't so concerned about it. My consultants were like, okay, it's in Italy, it's in China, we'll be okay. Like, there is no chance our government being this strong and having this great an infrastructure in the NHS will let anything take us down. Like, we had that much confidence. But then as the days and weeks, couple of weeks went on, my consultants one by one were becoming more and more concerned. They were giving us a bit more training around the virus. And 
in ourselves, it kind of gave us, it was exciting because it was new and no, it wasn't really mm -hmm. affecting anyone at this point in time. But as time went on, patients getting it, it became a bit more unpredictable and created a lot of anxiety. So when we had our first COVID ward, I was still an F1 and I was the first person to do on, an on-call evening shift. And I was freaking out because I thought, we've suddenly, got, we've, we've literally just switched into a pandemic. We've got our first COVID patients that the news is going on about everyone dying. And now I'm literally about to go into the COVID ward and take blood from a patient. Mm. And there's been nothing, there's nothing set up for me to like, I mean, I had PPE on stuff, that's all fine. But I just felt I had not been prepared for this. Medical school had not trained me for this. Mm. Um, and I remember phoning up my supervisor at the time saying, look, I'm a bit scared. What should I do? And she kind of walked me through it because I just felt on my own as an F1. Um, so it was unpredictable, it was scary. There was a lot of anxiety, fear. And as, as time went on, it was the unknown that probably scared us most. And one of the F2s on my ward who I look up to so much, she's so, so great. She was having to phone up the relatives of six elderly ladies who were in the bay. and basically tell them, your grandmother, your mother, your sister has got COVID. It's looking bad. They're probably dying and you can't come in and see them. And she broke down into tears. And that really made me realize how difficult situation we were in. Mm. Um, and that, I guess, prolonged up until now has created a sense of like mental fatigue. I'm just being just generally fed up on the situation. But actually we keep morale quite high at work. Like we've got a great team of junior doctors. Like we have a lot of fun outside of not having fun on the wards. <laughs> Definitely. And you mentioned like morale and and I think in general, well-being is a really important topic. So how do you personally try and make sure that you're looking after your well-being? Because I mean, if you're not well yourself, it's hard to look after other people well. So what sort of things have you incorporated into your life or what sort of things do you have on the side? I think mental health and keeping yourself sane is really important. And I believe everyone should have something that they're passionate about. Not just one thing, it can be multiple things. And they don't have to be massively passionate about anything really as long as they have things that they can do as, as a relief the, the main things for me are like music and fitness and um, in terms of fitness I think if you can go for runs or just do simple things at home that is really important mm. throughout the pandemic but just generally it's important um, but music for me is the main thing so throughout medical school I was doing a lot of music I was DJing at clubs and festivals I won a global music contest in my third year of med school which completely changed things for me overnight um, I released music on labels like Sony Music. And I guess going into the pandemic, I needed something to give myself a bit of a, of a release. So I launched something called NH Sessions. It kind of just rolled off the tongue. And I told my friend and he was like, that's the best idea you've ever had. I thought it was a bit of a weird concept, DJing in my scrubs. But it seemed to be a hit overnight. And I just kept doing it. <laughs> and I'm still doing it. It's a lot of fun. It just means you can sort of share music with people and it creates a sense of togetherness and gives mm -hmm. me something to look forward to every single day. Yeah. And if people want to get involved in these NH sessions, where can they find them? Best place to find my NH sessions journey is on my Instagram, mm -hmm. which is at Badalia DJ. And on there, they'll also find clips of me like talking on TV and stuff, which I find a bit weird. That's definitely not something medical school um, prepares you for either, is it? Not at all. I mean, today I was on Sky News. Right. Um, yeah, I was on a panel discussion on Sky News. I'd just been into work for an hour for a, an ITU meeting. So I'm about to start ITU. And an hour later, I was on Sky News talking about what it's like working in hospital. As you do. There's a crazy, crazy balance right now. Yeah. Mm. 
I think it's so important that you have something that you can go back to because I know that when you've got exams or you've got something that you've got to prioritize often the first thing that I feel like I can push aside to focus on exams is something that I don't consider so important like the stuff I like doing like reading or drawing things like that I can just be like oh it doesn't really matter it's not important it's not going to make me do better in my exams but actually it's so important to have something that you can just fall back on when things get a bit bit hard because be a doctor or not I still am going to like reading so it's it's like it's putting yourself in a better mindset so that you can just be a bit more resilient when it comes to it so I think it's so inspiring that you're working in the way that you are in, in really difficult circumstances but also making sure you have time to do some really cool things too thank you and yeah I completely agree with you I think you need that sense of a, of a release and mm-hmm. even if you just do one percent of that thing compared to maybe doing 20 percent previously at least you have that small amount of time to just refresh your mind and it helps you reevaluate as well that's the mm-hmm. most important yeah, there's more to life than exams. And like, I've never been asked by anyone like a family, a relative, like party or on placement. Oh, what did you get in your most recent coursework? Absolutely not. It's what did you get up to the weekend and things like that, that make you a human. Um, and it's the yeah. human connection at the end of the day that makes the difference, isn't it? Completely agree with you. And mm-hmm. I think becoming a doctor is an absolutely amazing journey. And I think it can make you into a really like well-rounded human if you can prioritize important parts of life. So being a doctor, but also social life and health and everything you could become like a really all-round great person I think. Mm. So I mean you've done so much already do you have any idea of what you're going to do next I know we mentioned enough to is when if people just choose to they can apply to specialties or if they choose not to they can do an F3 year or locum have you had any thoughts you don't have to share them if you don't want to but just curious. Yeah my thoughts are that I want to take an F3 year maybe go traveling if we're allowed to I'm actually working on a lot of music with some amazing vocalists. So we're speaking mm-hmm. to record labels at the moment about releasing new music. So that's really the next thing. Um, mm-hmm. I never really ever predicted through medical school that I'd be talking about my experience on TV and things like that. But I've got a lot of sort of TV and like radio things coming up as well, which have been a lot of fun. And again, pushing you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. So going to just keep enjoying those things and learning those skills and then sort of dipping it out of medicine and working. Yeah, I think that's so important because everyone always thinks of doctors. I I say everyone, a lot of people think that doctors are just robots and they are only people when they're in the hospital and forget that they have lives outside. So it's nice to hear someone talking about all the things that they want to do other than being a doctor because they're so critical in shaping who you are as a doctor, as Kira said. So I'm excited to see what you bring out in the future, to be honest. (laughs) Thank you. And I think actually it's quite difficult to have a life outside of medicine so you got to find a way of doing it whether it's writing it down and just having to structure your day make sure you find that balance Mm, absolutely so I think we've talked about an awful lot um so far just to maybe bring the episode to the close what has been your proudest achievement to date looking back it could be career-wise it could be things you've done on the side anything that is a really difficult question (laughs) um sorry to think about it that is really hard I would say my, my proudest achievement today is like creating N8 sessions and making it a thing that people are aware of. So at this point in time, it has reached millions around the world. Like to begin with, it was literally just me in my kitchen in front of a camera making breakfast after a night shift. And now we've literally had it on Sky, ITV1, ITV2, 
I was interviewed by Imaya Jama on ITV2 as part of V Festival. It's been on radio one several times and it's more than just me DJing. It's actually an, a, a platform for new artists as well to, to share their music and get it heard because I love hearing new talent. So I think it encompasses a lot. On top of that, also like mental health is really important to me. And today on Sky, I was talking about mental health and how music gets me through it. So if I can use N8 sessions as like a vehicle to promote music and like positivity and good vibes, then I'll continue doing that. So I think I've created something that could potentially be quite powerful. Mm. That's probably the thing I'm most proud, proud of because I've worked so hard to it as well. Definitely. And everyone listening, I think, I mean, I feel inspired and just know the world is your oyster. Like there's no such thing as a, a box the doctor should fit in. It can be whatever shape or size yeah. box or like even smash the box for goodness sake. Whatever you want to do. Fab. I can agree with you. <laughs> Fab. So much. Thank you for having me. Really nice to talk. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. That's all right. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more, be sure to check out all of our previous episodes, reading from our highly popular OpenPods, UCAP, BMAT and Interview Advice and even more. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with doctor spelt DR for more and be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you never miss an episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye.